The Big Light presents Hello, I'm Sean McDonald. You're listening to Blethered, and my guest is former Al Qaeda bomb maker and MI6 spy. Eamon Dean. Eamon grew up in Saudi Arabia and went off to fight in the front line in Bosnia aged just 16 before joining Al-Qaeda and swearing an oath of allegiance to Osama bin Laden. He eventually defected to work for the British security services as a spy for seven and a half years before his cover was eventually blown. We talk about his motivations for taking up arms in the first place and the part that radicalisation played becoming disillusioned with the cause and eventually denouncing it completely. It's one of the most incredible stories I've ever heard and it's a long one, but none of this could be cut out. You can listen to Eamon on the brilliant Conflicted podcast by Message Heard and also buy his book in physical or audio format to get even more detail. It's called Nine Lives, My Time as the West's Top Spy Inside Al-Qaeda. If you enjoy this episode, feel free to share it. Cheers. Eamon Dean, you've been described as a very kind, gentle family man, a self-confessed nerd whose biggest vice in life is Diet Coke, but at one time in your life... You were a sworn member of Al-Qaeda who was prepared to die to further what you thought at the time was a righteous defence of Islam. Now, to the person listening, it might seem impossible that this statement could possibly be true given how contradictory it seems, but I think that the most complex and sometimes horrifying stories and perspectives often have very understandable and even relatable origins. Would you agree with that statement? Oh, yes. Um, I wasn't the only one who I would, who this description can fit. Uh, I mean, many of my former comrades within Al-Qaeda were loving fathers, loving husbands, mm. uh, people who came from well-educated and sometimes wealthy backgrounds. We'll explore the the reasons for that radicalization and that failure to identify how contradictory that is to, as you say, these people's most instinctive and innate um, behaviours such as being family men and, and you know where they come from. But let's go back to your life. So born in Hobar in Saudi Arabia, six brothers. What was family life like? Uh, well, five brothers. Five I was brothers. Oh, six. you were the six, sorry. <laughs> I was the youngest. Oh, that was amazing. I mean, Because basically while I was really nerdy and geeky in school, and that means I was, you know, an easy target for any bully. Mm. But, uh, you know... Uh, it, it it was a conventional wisdom at school. Don't touch this boy. Basically, there are five older brothers. <laughs> Two of them have black belt in judo. Who will make sure, basically, that you regret it for the rest of your life? So I was the most protected nerd in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> <laughs> and that's quite that is quite a, a big. Is your, is your oldest brother Mohadin? Yes. And he that was he was the one who went to America to study and wanted to become a hippie and all that before coming back. So he's eighteen years older. So there really is like a. You're completely protected. Did, did that give you like a, a confidence to then just p- pursue whatever it was you really wanted as a child because you had no no bullies to worry about? Indeed. That, that, you know, f- for sure. I mean, the uh, support network of five older brothers um, wasn't only ba- basically just about the protection uh, against uh, bullies, but also, you know, the 
knowledge that they pass, you know, because of mm. the fact that they were well traveled and, you know, they were uh, themselves hungry for, you know, uh, knowledge and understanding of the world. Uh, they themselves passed that, you know, uh, all, uh, you know, to me. And so I was grateful for them, you know, to this day. One thing I'm quite interested in, because I'm also trying to get an idea or understanding of the level of comfort that you had in your family life, so we can relate it to what you did later in life. So you had a Sri Lankan maid called Chitra. Mm. Is that a very normal thing, or or were you a part of the, the you know the the elite, let's say, of Saudi Arabia? <laughs> well, I mean, we were not elite. We were, I would, what I would say, middle upper middle class mm. um, to an extent. You know, I would say middle class, typical middle class Saudi family. And you know, uh, you know, and the uh, and the fact basically that my mother was looking after six children, and so mm. of course she needed the the help of a maid. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know. Well, I mean, six children is just too much. <laughs> so, uh, in your words, as a child, you described yourself as an insufferable know-it-all, and you thrived <laughs> in your like your knowledge of religious texts. Now, I am blown away by this fact that you memorized the Quran entirely. I started at age nine, and after 33 months, uh, at age 12, I finished memorizing it. Uh, 6,236 verses. <laughs> I, I will come back to the Quran as well, because I have a few questions and things yeah. that I've kind of seen. But So that made your mother very proud, of, oh, as, yeah. it, as it would. So did she, was she encouraging you to pursue being like a... An Islamic professor of history or like an imam? Or? Yeah, uh, the, the reason is because all my brothers were showing aptitude towards, you know, math and science uh, and engineering. And one was mostly real estate. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm the, I'm the one basically who showed more interest in uh, religion, theology and history. And so she thought that, OK, you know, the others are going to be professionals. Mm -hmm. So at least this is the young lamb of the family. I will make him the, you know, the, the, the proverbial sacrificial lamb to God, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, in a sense that he will be the, you know, the religious offering, you know, to God. Yeah. He will be the one who will be an imam. So you, I mean, you did pursue that very sort of vigorously. You competed in Islamic poetry contests. Were you? This might be wrong. You were champion of the Eastern Province, <laughs> indeed. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think when you when you when you memorize the Quran, you train your memory because you, memories are like you know uh, our own bodies. Mm. Uh, if you don't work out, if you don't exercise. You know, you will, of course, basically become fat and, you know, uh, you know, you will not be fit. However, the memory is the same. Mm. You know, if you train it to memorize, you know, numbers, images, verses, lines, num you know, uh, suddenly you will find basically that the more that you memorize, the more exponential the growth of your memory become. And as a result, when you memorize, you know, more than 6,200 verses by heart as, you know, as if, you know, you recite your own name, then memorizing anything else become easier. Mm -hmm. Well, I was going to ask this later, but I'll ask it now so you'll know this without me even having to say the words, but for the benefit of the listener, I will. So, and I'm kind of jumping here, but it'll make sense. So, Surah 22, verse 39 of the Quran, <laughs> which is, permission to fight is given to those upon whom war is made because they are oppressed and most surely... God is well able to assist them. And then the next one I wanted to mention was Surah 2, verse 190 of the Quran. Fight for God's sake against those who fight against you, but begin no hostilities, for God loves not the aggressors. Can you explain how those texts could be used to, to convince people that, you know, taking up arms against the West or the infidel or in defense of Islam could be justified? Because I can see how that would be justifiable. 
Okay. These two verses, actually there are 34 verses in the Quran scattered that justifies in a warfare. Mm -hmm. But warfare can only be justified within the context of a nation state. So if you look at the Islamic era of the Prophet Muhammad, there were 13 years when he was a Mecca preacher mm -hmm. and then 10 years in Medina, a statesman. So military warfare did not, you know, or was not introduced into Islam until basically it became a state and with defined borders and mm. uh, defined territory that needed to be defended against Arab raiders. So only then you could have a militarized movement when you have a territory to defend and to administer, to secure. In this context, if you are an individual, you have no right whatsoever to take up arms. Mm. Because when the Prophet was just only an individual with a group of followers in Mecca, and they were already established authority by the Meccan uh, tribal leadership, he did not raise an arm, not even to slap any individual. Which means that during the time when the Muslims were a minority in Mecca, they were forbidden completely to take up arms mm. in any shape or form. Because that is not what a group of individuals will do because it will lead to chaos, it will lead to more bloodshed, and it will lead to uh, the breakdown of societal law and order. However, when you become, when you know, as in the case of Medina, when the people of Medina converted to Islam willingly, and they invited the Prophet to flee Mecca and to come to Medina to become their de facto, you know, preacher and ruler, he then introduced the militarization of this new fledgling state because it was necessary. Arabia was a bloodbath, mm. literally bloodbath, you know, and, uh, you know, it was chaotic, split into 400 fiefdoms, you know, of warring tribes. So if he doesn't militarize this uh, new entity and quickly, it will become subject to raids and invasion at any time. And it happened already. So his militarization of Islam was similar more or less basically to the militarization of Judaism mm. that happened basically when they were, uh, of course, lost in the desert and then wanted to cross from Canaan into, mm. um, into Palestine in order to reclaim the lands of their uh, forefather, Israel. So it's the same thing here. It's like, you know, this is why you see that, you know, the similarities in the militarization of faith between Islam and Judaism, which is contrary to what, you know, Christians basically would have mm. experienced. The reason is because... You know, uh, unlike, you know, uh, Jesus, Muhammad did, you know, wasn't born into the law and order of the Roman Empire. Uh, Jesus was born into the Pax Romana of Augustus. Uh, Muhammad was born into bloodbath Arabia. <laughs> so, you know, uh, either kill or be killed. So that is why these verses, every verse of jihad cannot be exercised by an individual or a group of individuals can only be exercised, you know, by the state. Jihad and the deployment of violence is only the prerogative of the state. And this was understood mm. for 1350 years of Islamic history. Only in the past 50 years, we started to see the breakdown of this understanding that the state wages jihad, the state deploys violence into no individuals and groups of individuals can come together and wage violence. It's contradictory to Islam. And I have explained it in the best way I could explain it to any in any way. These verses do not apply to individuals. They apply to states and states mm -hmm. only. That's it. 
what a fantastic explanation. Uh, it certainly ans- it's answered a few questions I had as well, but I still will go on <laughs> to, to, to pick up those points. But it couldn't have been a... We'll park that then with, with that knowledge. Let's go back to your age 13. You very sadly lost your mother to a brain aneurysm. Um, you said that was losing a teacher, mentor and companion. But you then found solace in, uh, or a substitute for what you lost in Syed Kutub's In the Shadow of the Quran. No, correct me if I'm wrong, please. Kutub was a founding father of modern jihad. He was the founding father of uh, the founding father of the modern revolutionary Islam. Mm. He is the one who started really breaking down the distinct line between whether the deployment of jihad and violent jihad uh, can be done either by the nation state or by individuals. He's the one who broke it down, really. He's the one mm. who basically blurred the line completely between whether individuals can wage jihad or the state can wage jihad. Because he said the state that is worthy of waging jihad no longer exists. All the 56 Muslim states that exist right now are not legitimate. So by delegitimizing the modern nation Muslim state, mm-hmm. he then put the right to deploy violence in the hands of individuals for the first time in Islamic history. And, you know, because in the past, the deployment of violence in the hands of individuals was the creed of a very breakaway sect. You know, it's a deviant sect in Islam mm-hmm. called the Khawarij, you know, or the rebellious, you know, sect, the deviant sect, which was always a small minority, you know, always inhabited the deserts or the mountains. But for the first time, to make it a mainstream Islamic position, Sayyid Qutb was the one who made it mm. into a mainstream Islamic position. And that influenced uh, groups like the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, influenced groups then after that, like the foundation of the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. Um, and then, of course, after that, morphed into what we know as Al-Qaeda and then later into ISIS. So what, what I, again, what I'd like, I want to then... I suppose to leave markers in the sand as such as, as, as the story that we're trying to tell. So you're, you're 13, you've lost both parents, um, you're, you're a little bit lost in the world, and then you, you encounter the, the writings of Syed Qutb. Um, let's then pair that up with, so that's being opened up to you, your your awareness or your consciousness, and it's, it's influencing how you think. Let's talk about radicalisation through childhood. So Yusuf Alayeri told you that Pepsi stood for pay every penny to support Israel. <laughs> he told yeah. you that when you held a bottle of Coca-Cola to the mirror, that the reflected logo in Arabic backwards reads, no Mohammed, no Mecca, but here's my favourite. Yusuf Alayeri came to your school and told you that the Smurfs was a Western plot to destroy the fabric of Islamic society, to destroy morality and respect for your parents. And if you continue to watch it, you'd start carrying out pranks and mixing magic potions. This is forbidden. And here is the favourite bit, the fucking PS de resistance. <laughs> the sexuality of the female smurf was, <laughs> was disgusting and unacceptable. Now, hearing that now as a 29-year-old Western uh, male, I, I just fucking piss myself laughing at that. <laughs> However... I can understand how that would how that would influence the mind of a you know a young boy. Please talk me through how that shaped your mind. I mean, okay, so I have to confess that, <laughs> and you still watched it. Yes, not only I still watched it, I still I still watch it, and I'm actually I introduced my daughter to it. That's brilliant. <laughs> and uh, myself and my wife, we call our daughter Smurfette. So brilliant. What I think is hilarious when he says mixing magic potions, like does he expect kids to be like, 
Alabara Expemius, like what do they ex- <laughs> <laughs> what is expected? <laughs> because you see, like I mean, the, you know, the, the, you know, we lived in a society that was a little bit super, super superstitious. Yeah, and the idea that of you know magic potions, you know, was you know to, to us at least at that time that well there was some reality to it, like there was some truth to it. That's mm-hmm. what we were told that oh there is magic, it influences you. Like you know people you know don't take any drink from strangers. It would it may contain something that might you know. That, you know, idle your mind. Are you talking about alcohol? No, 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 magic. So, <laughs> are you right. talking about drugs or hallucinogens? No, 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 magic. <laughs> that sounds a bit like my upbringing. If I ever questioned anything, my mum would say, yeah, yeah, it's magic. If I would say, like, well, how did Santa Claus get all in? The answer, the flat answer was magic. It's because <laughs> magic. So it seems that that's something that's, that's um, cross-ideological. Uh, in a more serious note, let's talk about there's two radical clerics in Saudi Arabia who were railing against the presence of the Americans at that time who were involved in, was it the Kuwaiti-Iraqi conflict? Yeah, I mean, it was the Iraqi uh, invasion of Kuwait and, of course, the Americans were coming in massive numbers to yeah. expel Saddam out of Kuwait. And they were warning that they would only leave after reorganising the region to serve their interests. So those clerics were, uh, forgive me if I get these names wrong, but were Safara Khawaili and Salman al and and you attended... You know, to talk to they would say so. They were hinting that this is the end of days, and we have to take up arms. Uh, anybody, any able-bodied Muslim, has to come and fight in the defence of Islam. How much did that really start to push you towards um, again a more radical perspective? Well, all of this, all of what you mentioned, you know, more or less, you know, started uh, giving me the. Uh, necessary doses of the hallucinogens that many Islamists, unfortunately, end up, uh, you know, consuming, which called the prophecies, mm-hmm. the end of days, as you mentioned it. I mean, the idea that we are now living the age of prophecies, triggered by the return of the Jews to the Holy Land in mm. uh, Jerusalem, and therefore we are going to witness the end of times and the bloody battles that is going to shape, you know, the world for the next thousand years. You know, that sounded more like Hitler saying, oh, you know, the, th- you know, uh, the Reich of the thousand years <laughs> ahead. Um, but I was, because you see, when you are already deep into religious text, and when someone comes to you, you know, between the age of 12 and the age of 16, that look, you know, not only there is, you know, we are on the cusp of something big, something huge. It's a divine plan that has been preordained from 1400 years ago. And you are going to be part of it. We are going to be part of it, because if we are not part of it, we will be not only outside of it, we will be against it and we will be subjected to eternal damnation. Mm-hmm. So do you want to be part of the history that God preordained or do you want to be left out, you know, as, as they always say, either you join the caravan, you know, this is the desert, you know, yeah, imagery, yeah, yeah. either you join the caravan or cry on the side, you know, uh, on the side of the road, seeing it, you know, disappear beyond by, the horizon. Yeah. yeah. So, of course, I said, no, of course I want to join. And when, you know, you see, people are generally always mesmerized by the mystique, you know, by mm-hmm. the mysteries of the prophecies. People, be, you know, people, this is why, like, you know, after 9-11, people were looking for Nostradamus. You know, what did he say about it? <laughs> yeah. You know, when COVID-19 happened, after 20 years after 9-11, COVID-19 happened, people looking into what Nostradamus said about it. So people are always looking for answers. And so when someone come with religious texts and saying, I have the answers you're looking for, 
And if you want a purpose in life, I have it for you. You want to have you know, a destiny to fulfill. I have that also for you. And mm -hmm. you want to matter rather than basically being a bookish nerd you know, in a Saudi school? Well, history is made not here, but somewhere else. And that's basically when, you know, around the age of 16, just just days into my 16th birthday, I found out that my, you know, best friend who's, although three years my senior, but still basically was my best friend, was leaving Saudi to go to Bosnia to fight the war there. Uh, that was around uh, autumn of uh, 1994. Mm -hmm. When I was going to say, when I was going to his house to say goodbye, that's when it dawned on me that for the past two years, I was ready to go, except I didn't know that I was ready. And mm -hmm. I knocked on his door and I said, you know, that, you know, I heard you're going. How many of you going? He said three. I said, no, you'll be four. And I remember him protesting so much, saying, basically, you're 16. Jihad is, you know, it's a war. It's not a picnic. Uh, people lose limbs, you know, get you know, badly wounded. It's not just only the question of getting killed and martyred. There's more than more to it than that. Do you think the jihad needs you? I said, oh, no, I'm not arrogant to think the jihad needs me, but I need it. Mm -hmm. That answer changed his mind and changed my life. And I think, you know, at that moment, I, you know, and always when I, whenever I reflect on it years later, I always believe basically that these, t you know, those 10 minutes when I was going to his home mm -hmm. convinced me basically that everything I was reading, everything I went through basically was really, you know, leading up to that moment. Mm -hmm. That's why one of the things I always want to understand, that although I don't, condone it obviously in any way and I'm able to I'm able to condemn it because I can look at it with the benefit of having read people like yourself and, and having been educated to a very low low degree over it uh, of these types of things over the years and I can look at it from a very objective way and say no that's wrong but if I put myself in your shoes and I've lost both my parents I'm trying to find my way in the world and I'm being influenced you know through society every day through my peers through clerics and, and and preachers coming I feel like I probably would have if I'm honest with myself I think if everybody's honest with themselves they would make a similar decision um and so it's at that point then that you decide you have to travel via Vienna to get to to Bosnia um Indeed. Now, this is something I find hilarious. Upon <laughs> arriving in Vienna, you were very shocked with the, the way that women were dressed, as you would be. <laughs> yes. Um, and I think you, you, someone sat beside you and um, you, you were kind of taken aback by how beautiful she was. But, you know, you were, you were quite pious about it and you were, I suppose, rejecting that Western value um, of, of, you know, liberalism in terms of dress. But you leave the airport and you go for a McDonald's. So I just find that <laughs> hilarious because it's such a juxtaposition. You reject those Western values, but then we'll go for a fillet of fish. <laughs> <laughs> well, because we didn't know what else that we could eat and fish is halal by default. Yeah. Uh, so Do you we... know what I mean, though? Just by the whole, the, the juxtaposition of rejecting the American or the Western values, but then popping into the golden arches. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, I mean, yes, it is McDonald's, but you know what, basically, like, I mean, at the end of the day, we were working, we were wearing, you know, uh, Levi jeans and, uh, you know, so at the end of the day, well, you can't escape it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and because why? We always used to say to ourselves basically look you know uh, just like the cathartics you know basically of the uh, you know uh, 13th century in France 
you know, that there is a separate the duality between mm-hmm. the material world and the spiritual world. And yeah. the idea is, look, until we liberate ourselves from the material world by, you know, dying for God's sake and become martyrs, you know, we cannot really free be free of all the evils of the material world. Mm-hmm. Only when we are completely liberated from the material world by dying into the spirit and then, you know, transition, transitioning into the spiritual world, that's basically when finally we will be clean and pure. Mm-hmm. So eating at McDonald's, well, is part and parcel of being, you know, in touch with the filthy material world. Yeah. <laughs> So you you had arrived in Bosnia in order to defend the Bosnian Muslims against the Serbs. So can you tell me about, you've spoken before about when you first put on the uniform and you first held the AK-47, how how did that feel? Obviously you've just come, as you say, from being a bookish nerd to being on the front line of a war zone. Well, do you, when, when, I, when I was sent to the training camp and it is, uh, you know, high above a hill looking over you know, massive swathes of hills and valleys across Bosnia. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful scenery there. And I remember, you know, when I fired my first AK-47, when I, you know, put on the, you know, uh, camouflage uniform and, you know, and you are holding that rifle, I mean, you feel a sense of empowerment that I've never felt before. I Mm. mean, I understood really what is so intoxicating um, about empowerment and the feeling that basically you're free. Mm. You know, you're free. No one is gonna dare to tell you what to do. Except <laughs> basically you are part of a regimented man. <laughs> you know, a paramilitary group. But it's still like, you know, I mean, the idea is that, you know, there is no teacher to tell you around. You know, there is no authority. You know, there is no policeman coming, coming to tell you basically, like, you know, obey the law and, you know, stay put at a traffic light. I mean, you really feel that there is a sense of empowerment, that you are there because, you know, as if, you know, let me put it this way, basically, you feel as if, you know, the AK-47 is your pen mm. and the bullets are, you know, are your ink to write your own, you know, basically poetry on the pages of destiny. I mean, that, you know, I know it's poetic, but that's how you feel, mm-hmm. you know, about it. It's so empowering. And in later life, you know, I realized basically that why people who lived uh, you know, lives sometimes basically that they feel they were either, either marginalized or came from uh, backgrounds that did not empower them. They were either, you know, languishing in prisons for their previous criminality. When they come, you know, into jihadist uh, theaters, as we used to call them, they really become vicious because they get carried away with the fact that they are compensating for all the humiliation they felt before mm-hmm. in prisons or the fact that they were coming from poor or marginalized societies. And they get so carried away with the fact that now they are empowered. Mm. And so that's why you see a lot of atrocities because they go far in abusing that new empowerment. I've heard you um, speaking before also saying that with ISIS recruitment, that they're basically recruiting gangsters and psychopaths and and violent gang leaders and I suppose so the words of the prophet are with the first drop of blood all the sins of a martyr are forgiven and with the second they see their place in heaven and it's basically explained that they'll have 72 virgins awaiting and that that individual can ask for eternal life to be granted to 70 of his family and friends so for you for example could be reunited with the mother and father that you lost That, that helps me to understand 
if if you know if you're all, if you're impressionable and you're already thinking along those lines, again, if somebody came to me and said you can be reunited with the people that you've you've cried over, I would probably would bite their hand off, and I can understand why people would join ISIS if they think, okay, so for everything I've done, I can have it completely. I can you know I can be exonerated of all wrongdoing, and not only that, I'll be surrounded by everyone I love. I mean, how did that cross your mind? Because I know you spoke about martyrdom when you arrived in Vienna with your friend. We were talking to each other about how do we envision our deaths. And uh, we were four, and two of us died exactly the same way that they envisioned their death, which is quite creepy. Um, uh, just some of it, which which shows basically that you know there is an invisible power out there, basically that sometimes grants us our you know most disturbed wishes. Um, but nonetheless, the lure of martyrdom was always there for me because of everything you said. First of all. It's not just only the forgiveness. I mean, by that, by the time I was only 16, what sins would I have done? Like, you know, I, Watching I, I, the Smurfs. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> so, so, or drinking Pepsi. Um, <laughs> but, you know, really, it wasn't so much about the forgiveness. It was so much basically about the fact that, you know, I was so convinced that, you know, the world is not something worth chasing after. And that, you know, it's better basically to die for a greater cause than to live a marginal, meaningless, boring life. So it's not the manner of the life you lead. It's actually the greatness of the death you chase. Mm -hmm. So that is, you know, something that was always in my mind and the idea that, you know, look, you know, I want the shortcut. I want to I want to go to heaven now. That's Mm -hmm. now. Take me. So. You know, it's been a year, almost a year since I arrived. I arrived in October of 1994. In September of 1995, it was the, you know, the largest military engagement. You know, 4,000 Mujahideen, you know, uh, including Bosnians and Arabs and all of that, basically were fighting in the last big push against the Serbs uh, in central Bosnia. And I was uh, part of a paramedic team that were trained very hastily, you know, basically to uh, to take, you know, those who were wounded immediately in, in the battle. And it was really close quarter combat to take them, to drag them away from Hamway into the second line so they can be taken into the, uh, the field hospital and then come back again through hails of bullets, basically, to drag the uh, next one. So I remember that I heard the... Uh, cries of help of someone from inside a bunker that just been cleared uh, from Serbs and the fighting was still ongoing. And I heard him, you know, really cry and I knew basically he was an Arab, you know, it was an Arabic. So I was running towards, you know, the entrance to the bunker, except basically that was an entrance that has been booby-trapped before the Serbs left. So I dragged a wire and the wire was attached to four landmines. And I felt I'm dragging something and I looked down and I found basically, you know, distinctly the mines, you know. So, you know, when I was looking at it, looking at it, I was thinking, you know, for one to malfunction or two to malfunction, that's lucky. Mm. But for four to malfunction, that is beyond luck. So I remember I was extremely angry at that moment. I looked up to heaven and I shouted, am I not worthy? You know, it's like you deny me this because I'm not worthy, you know. And I was, you know, 
you know, even even when I was, you know, basically dragging that individual out and he mm. was still shouting, I have to inject him with morphine so he can, you know, stop shouting. Otherwise, he will attract the uh, attention of Serbian snipers, uh, to, <laughs> you know, and uh, and but then I was always at the back of my mind, I was thinking, you know, what really happened? What just happened now? Mm. Uh, years later. You know, I realized that I had so many dead relatives, you know, basically aunts, uncles, you know, my all my grandparents, mm -hmm. my parents, that there were so many people up there watching over me to make sure that four landmines wouldn't get me even. So, yeah. <laughs> but I didn't appreciate that at that time. Only years uh -huh. later, I appreciated it. And I realized basically that, you know, there is, you know, again, an another power at force here. Like, I mean, another power you know, really working, mm -hmm. you know, mysteriously. And they have other plans for me. And so I, you know, just continued with the, you know, with the, you know, with, with the fight in Bosnia. And then when it was over, I didn't want to go back home. You know, went to Afghanistan, went to uh, the Caucasus, uh, went to the Philippines, and then all the way back to Afghanistan mm -hmm. again to, uh, well, uh, to finally, after being convinced, uh, to uh, join Al-Qaeda. Mm. That was when you met um, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed at a wedding. So he went on to mastermind 9-11. Um, and he spoke passionately about the need to rid the world of the American influence. So what was, I mean, talk me through that meeting in your own terms and words. The war in Bosnia was coming to an end. And uh, there was, a you know, just, I think it was October 95, just a year after I arrived and... He arrived because he was looking for talents in Bosnia. Mm. And also, basically, he wanted to influence the flow of the fighters out of Bosnia. He knew that the war is about to end because there were peace talks and there was a ceasefire. So he was trying to influence the people. Do not go into Chechnya or Kashmir or whatever. Basically, just divert your, you know, uh, your strength and your commitment to Afghanistan. The camps are reopening there for training. And these are sponsored by Al-Qaeda, by Osama bin Laden, who wasn't in Afghanistan at that time. He was in Sudan. Hmm. So he was trying to tell us that, look, you know, your experience in Bosnia have shown, showed us that the West is manipulating us into fighting fringe wars on the fringes of the Muslim world. You know, whether it is Kashmir or Afghanistan in the past and Chechnya and Bosnia, no. We should actually focus on reshaping the center of the Muslim world, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Iraq, Syria, because the fringes are weak because the center is weak. And if we focus on, you know, changing the political landscape of the center of the Muslim world, then we can have a chance. And the center of the Muslim world is being occupied by the Americans. Well, that was his perception and the perception of Al-Qaeda at that time. Therefore, we need to prepare ourselves militarily because the nature of the battle will change. We are not going to be fighting conventional war uh, in the mountains as we did in Bosnia and before that in Afghanistan. No, we are going to fight a war in which we are going to be operatives, you know, moving in urban settings and moving from one safe house to another. Uh, making sure basically that the Americans and their allies are hit where it, where it hurts. We were not entirely convinced at the time of what he said, but what he said was ominous that, look, the, our enemy, our number one enemy is America. And if we manage in expelling the Americans out of the Middle East altogether, 
then we will have a real chance of realizing a long-held dream of re-establishing the caliphate, mm. you know, which is a political system that is similar to the Catholic world, except the Pope is not only the head of religious affairs, but also the political, military, and mm-hmm. social affairs as well. So that's what he was saying. And I remember when I told him, okay, look, I'm trying to go to Chechnya. If I can't make it there because it's tough to get into, if I wanted to go to Afghanistan for the training, you know, how do I do it? He said, oh, no, n- n- don't worry about it. He just wrote a phone number and a name. And he said, just call this phone number, you know, call this guy. Uh, tell him that it's me, Khalid al-Sheikh, as we used to call him at that time. Khalid al-Sheikh sent me. And he will do the rest. So, and that's it. Uh, you know, so uh, at first I went to... Uh, uh, Azerbaijan and Georgia at the time in order to try to get Chechnya. I didn't, but I became an office jihadist, mm-hmm. you know, becoming, you know, uh, you know, I had my crash course in accounting. Because <laughs> <laughs> right. you're like, re- responsible for making sure that they had food supplies distributed in mayonnaise or something as well. Yes. That you used to, <laughs> I mean, talk, talk why, why, I know why, but explain to the listener why mayonnaise. Why mayonnaise? Well, when I was based in Azerbaijan, uh, the idea that the Chechen and separatist uh, and the jihadist uh, one of their require one of their food requirements uh, was mayonnaise because uh, you know first of all it is cold weather in the mountains so they need a lot of uh, protein source mm-hmm. you know to keep uh, warm and keep fed uh, so it is full of fat full of protein <laughs> um, they mix it with rice and bread and everything you can imagine basically even they mix it with you know they, you know they open the tuna cans basically put the mayonnaise on top eat it and <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, so they were, you know, this is why I remember when someone said to me, oh, Ayman, like, you know, you've been to four different war zones, basically, like, and you've been to Afghanistan, Chechnya, Philippines, uh, in Bosnia. So how was the war in Chechnya? What, what, how was it different from everywhere else? I said, well, the only thing I managed to throw at the Russians were jars of mayonnaise. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I did not see any combat in Chechnya. I can tell you that. <laughs> and before we move on, I suppose, and it's something that I, I have actually overlooked there. What are the other remnants of war in your your mindset? Do you ever suffer from stress or or was it something that you were just completely desensitised to? Well, I always get asked this question about PTSD, Mm. you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, and whether basically I do have it. I mean, you know, and, and basically it will be extremely naive or, you know, I would be in denial to say basically that I don't have it. I do have a mild form of it. Um, but if you are someone who is deeply religious, mm. spiritual, someone basically who understands that everything happened for a reason and that suffering is part of this world, then you don't desensitize it. But basically what you do is you compartmentalize it. Mm-hmm. You know, you really uh, see it in a different way than... You know, let's say a secular individual would see it and then basically just don't understand what what was what is going on here, why the suffering you know and, and, and on this industrial scale is taking place. Um, you know, you know, but basically, I remember that I went into uh, we were on patrol and we pushed a Serbian unit deeper and deeper, basically into their territory, and in the process we encountered the village of, you know, in, in Bosnia near Zavidovich that was, you know, completely burnt to the ground, basically, mm. including the mosque, the minaret basically fell on the dome, spitting it into half. So the imagery was absolutely as if, 
it's so dystopian. Mm. And of course, some of the houses have charred remains of people, including babies. So I remember, you know, basically looking at this and I was, you know, frozen in my, you know, on the doorstep, basically just looking at it. So another, you know, uh, fellow jihadist basically came behind me and just put his hand on my shoulder and he said, remember, they are the lucky ones. Hmm. And because they are somewhere better than we are right now. So you see how the mindset take it there. It's a very yeah. different mindset. No one's saying, oh, the poor bastards, you know, what happened to them? No, they were saying they are the lucky ones because they went somewhere far better. Hmm. And the idea is they suffered so God will make it up to them in the afterlife. So they mm. will have it much better in the afterlife because those who did it to them will have it much worse in the afterlife. So that's how, you know, the, you know, you know we used to see things um, at that time and how you basically understand that suffering is part of this life. And I think basically mm. it's similar basically to the Judeo-Christian tradition, you know, of suffering being yeah. part of the fabric of life that helps me to understand it even more because there is obviously a massive difference in mindset and experience um i suppose something else that maybe reinforced it which again i have to choose my words carefully because i'm not going to say i can understand why someone would would want to i don't know to seek vengeance and seek revenge but that's a human instinct. Um, I suppose a good example, you met a Bosnian fighter, Abdin, mm -hmm. that studied in university in Sarajevo, and his experience was the Serbs pillaged his village, killed his whole family, raped his sister, killed her, kidnapped another sister, and they don't know what happened to her. And for him, he said jihad was a vengeance and consolation. And again, I think you would have to be... You'd have to be a robot to to not be able to comprehend why someone would just be so transfixed by rage and anger and, and it because you often hear people say how how could how could terrorists commit atrocities again if this has been taken out of context i will put it in context i'm not saying that that is then completely okay but from each individual which makes up the whole puzzle each piece has its own story and often there are there are reasons um i suppose moving on to something i would like to ask as well Post Bosnia War, so you were before I do actually. So you were involved in as much as the logistics and being the the administrative jihadist. Yeah. You were involved in chemical and biological weapon creation as well, which is sort of something that went on to benefit the Western Security Services. But <laughs> talk me through that. How does that come about? Well, when you know the head of Bin Laden's bodyguard, uh, you know when he he met me in Afghanistan in August of uh, 97, and he really worked his magic on me, basically, using the prophecies as means. I mean, basically, he was using the prophecies as means to convince me, basically, that we are at the cusp of starting something big. And he was telling me about how, you know, Osama bin Laden is managing something big, you know, building something, you know, a, a front that is going to fight to expel the American presence out of the Middle East altogether. And I remember him uh, telling me all of this while I just came back from the Philippines after being disappointed, basically, that, yes, maybe Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who incidentally was in the Philippines three years before that <laughs> himself, you know, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was right that the fringes are going to be an endless, meaningless, pointless mm. conflicts, you know, basically sucking in resources, 
while really it's the center that needs to you know to have attention and so i started to come closer and closer to bin laden's position on this because i met him with other friends a year earlier but of course basically he just came back from sudan mm-hmm. he looked disheveled he didn't look the osama bin laden with the neat turban and the neat robes and mm-hmm. he looked so uh, tidy no he well, he looked like a disheveled refugee you know <laughs> in august of 1996 so in august 1997 a year later things changed you know basically he organized himself and reopened uh, more camps received more uh, volunteers financing and so At that moment, I, you know, with the mixture of the prophecies and me being more convinced that maybe we should, you know, give, uh, you know, the uh, more attention towards the center of the Arab world, Saudi Arabia and Egypt. So I, you know, agreed to join Al-Qaeda. So, mm. um, you know, the head of Bin Laden's bodyguard, his name is Hamza Al-Ghamdi. So Hamza, you know, arranged for me to go and see uh, Osama Bin Laden. And I went there to uh, meet him. Um, of course, basically, the process of the allegiance, you know, the oath of allegiance is that you shake hands and then you recite the uh, oath of allegiance. And uh, that's it. And uh, he told me basically how, you know, that I'm, I made the right choice and that basically, you know, all that I need to do is to remain steadfast on this because it's not going to be an easy journey. Mm. It's going to be a very harsh, difficult one. And then the question was... You know, well, you know, with Hamza Ghamdi there, you know, you are not exactly, you know, a uh, commando's material. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but we heard that you have a good aptitude for math, you know, when you were studying artillery and maps, uh, which means basically that you might have good, you know, uh, aptitude for chemistry and physics because we need people who can be taught this here and now. And so I was told I will go and study you know, uh, explosives, bomb making, chemical weapons, biological weapons, poisons, you know, mm-hmm. with, you know, the most celebrated, you know, expert in this within Al-Qaeda. And I didn't even blink, you know, w- within a split second, I said, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I-, I was always fascinated by this. And so I said, yes, I will. Um, and uh, I was sent there for 11 months. Did you see that as com- being completely abstract from civilian attack did you see that as no we're going to fight against american military bases we're going to go after you know as a war not so much as terrorist against innocents well what happened remember basically i'm the product of the uh, gulf war in uh yeah. in, you know in saudi arabia and iraq and kuwait and and uh, basically we were always under the threat of chemical weapons from saddam hussein So for me, chemical weapons were something that was scary, that like the Americans were so scared of. And they were strangling Iraq, or literally, mm. you know, basically, you know, choking it for years and years because of that, because they are scared of that capability. So if it occurred to me that just possessing this capability, you know, uh, is something in itself can be a deterrent and mm-hmm. can be basically a game changer. So that's why I was eager and jumping, j- jumped on it straight away. And so the idea is that it's going to be used in a military sense. That's what I was thinking at the beginning. Of course, when I went and joined, you know, uh, that camp, I, wa- you know, we were only four individuals who were trained because, you know, they, I remember the first day we ha- I arrived there, uh, our instructor, Um, you know, who's a legend among all the jihadists to this day, our instructor was saying to us that, look, 
we're not dealing with potatoes you know, and vegetables here. We're dealing with chemicals. You know, your first mistake is going to be your last mistake. <laughs> You're not going to live to make another mistake. <laughs> so, you know, de- you know, give respect to the chemicals you're dealing with here. And so, of course, basically, you know, this whole thing stretched for 11 months. You have to learn really a crash course of chemistry and physics. Chemistry, so basically you understand the chemicals that you're dealing with. And physics, so you can calculate you know, how much you need in terms of explosive power Mm -hmm. to destroy either a bridge or a building or a a tank that is passing through uh, if you want to build an IED. And so that is, uh, you know, why I was, you know, at the beginning it was really purely military. But then as we start moving into uh, chemical weapons and, you know, really working on um, finding delivery methods for these chemical weapons that we started talking about civilian targets mm-hmm. you know that oh militarily you know you can't put it you know you know as a warhead uh, on a missile and just you know launch it it's not going to be effective it's going to be very effective in a very small uh, confined space mm-hmm. but you can make chemical weapon IEDs and leave them in cinemas and train stations and nightclubs you know and you can kill a bunch of you know basically western animals like this that's how mm-hmm. the language that was yeah, used at the time yeah and that's the first thing. And I remember one of my colleagues there, you know, really is none other than Mu'az Fazzani. Now, Mu'az Fazzani, uh, you know, had an impact on Britain in a sense, because if you remember the Susa Beach uh, in Tunisia, in which 31 British tourists were killed yeah. and gunned down, he's the mastermind mm. of that, you see. 18 years earlier, basically, he was my colleague in Afghanistan training on the same program. Mm. Uh, and he is also the mastermind behind the Bardot Museum attack in Tunisia, which killed also, uh, I think, 13 or 14 tourists, uh, Western tourists. And so, you know, so that mentality, that, that man, I remember, he was extremely vicious and he was saying things basically that really made the hair stand in the back of my neck, you know, talking about, you know, this could be used in trains or airplanes even. Uh, and was starting actually, you know, even designing delivery methods for airplanes. So when when you say that about killing Western animals in, in nightclubs and it can be used in, in trains and planes and cinemas and with, with the, the language that that guy is using... You know the whole chimp. Have you read the chimp paradox by I think it's Professor Steve Peters? I know I haven't. So basically, he says that you have each brain has the chimp, the computer, and I think the human, and the chimp, the angry one, is the one that always reacts first, and you have to try and control it and be more rational. The chimp in me immediately then goes to, no, we'll just wage war on them. Just wage war on them. You know, out of fear. Yeah. I have to. You, you then pull yourself back in and go right. Wait a minute. There's there has to be this middle ground. And again, that's. I don't even know what I'm saying here because that was just quite <laughs> that was quite <laughs> tough to listen to. I mean, knowing that that that's actually a thing and it's a possibility that that it could happen in the future. It could happen, and uh, you know there were attempts, you know, in the past to do it. Um, and one of the attempts basically was, you know, in the year 2003 when they wanted to uh, place these devices that you know uh, our camp, our program created mm-hmm. in 1997, 1998, um, in New York uh, subway system in 2003. Uh, I was the one at the time because by then I became a spy, so <laughs> I was the one who actually, you know, uh, foiled the attack and you know alerted the uh, yeah. you know you know the uh, British intelligence service about it, but. You know, the, the the reality is that, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, remained in my mind. It's like, you know, I'm really, you know, it's like I was, I felt 
I felt basically as if I am some sort of a mild intellectual, you know, living with three psychopaths. Yeah. Basically there. And the most lenient one and the one who understood my concerns wasn't the three psychopaths I was, you know, with. It was the instructor himself. Mm. You know, he was more mild mannered, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, basically he was more, you know, more of a decent guy. Despite <laughs> the fact that yeah. He graduated 200 of the most lethal yeah. bomb makers the world has ever seen, including yeah. the Madrid bombers, the London bombers and many other bombers, basically. So, uh, But he was more mild mannered, you know, than them. And of course, basically, history later showed that one of them went on basically to mastermind two really horrendous terrorist acts basically in North Africa. Mm. I was going to ask that if you've been being an intellectual and being somebody who can be analytical at some point you're going to then get to the stage where you say nah come on like enough is enough or this is not what I thought it was and it seems that the turning point for that was in 1998 when two US embassies were bombed killing 200 Africans just to get at 12 American diplomats so did you decide then I just don't want to be part of this? That's the moment when doubt crept so much. It was as if something shattered. Because, you see, it's different when people tell you, oh, join us, we have a big plan and we're going to enact it. But then as soon as you see the plan enacted in a very different way and you start to somehow see the consequences ahead and you think, my God, I don't think this is a good idea. Mm. I don't think this is a good idea. We are going somewhere where I really don't want to follow you guys. You know, you're going somewhere where I can't follow. And I remember when I went to the Mufti of Al-Qaeda at the time, Abu Abdullah al-Muhajir, I asked him the question. I said, look, it's not like I'm doubting. Of course, basically, you can't go and say, I condemn this. No, of course, you can't. You know, and at that time, I didn't. I just wanted to, I was in doubt. And so I went to him and I said, look, you know, we are responsible for the deaths of more than 220 Africans who were at the wrong place at the wrong time um, just to kill 12 Americans. I mean, was it justified? You know, I, and I said to him, look, I'm not doubting or anything. I just want you to give me a justification that will make my heart, you know, basically at mm-hmm. peace. There is a verse in the Quran, yeah. you know, uh, where Abraham, you know, asked God, can you really resurrect the dead? Can you show me? So God told Abraham, are you not faithful? He said, I am faithful. I just want my heart to be at peace. So this phrase, I want my heart to be at peace. Mm -hmm. I used it with him. I said, look, I just want my heart to be at peace. I was quoting the Quran. Of course, basically, Abraham was told to take four birds, kill them, put them, you know, divide them into parts, put them at four different summits and then call them to him and they will all come, you know, basically Mm -hmm. alive and in one piece, each one. So I said this to him and he basically smiled at me and he said, well, look, you know, first of all, and and just remember, he was Egyptian, yeah? And in a very Arab superiority complex manner, he basically said to me, they're just a bunch of Africans, who cares? That's the first thing he said, which I found, you know, that it offended every sensibility that I had. Mm. You know, what? I mean... You know, shall I go and tell the Somalis in the camp here with us, basically, that you just said that? Mm. You know, they are Africans too. Have you, you know, and you're Egyptian for God's sake. Like, <laughs> yeah. and you're also African. <laughs> so, yeah. But I kept quiet. And then he said, look, there is a fatwa 
which is a religious edict, you know, for the listeners who don't understand what fatwa is. I think basically now all listeners will understand what a fatwa is <laughs> yeah. right now. You know, I'm familiar with fatwas. I have two fatwas in my head, actually. So Yeah, we'll come to those. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm very, I'm very intimately familiar with these <laughs> concepts anyway. So, so there is a fatwa, he said, from 800 years ago that enables us to attack an enemy if they have really hidden themselves among civilians. So I said, okay, where do I find them? He said, ah, you will find them in the comprehensive works of Ibn Taymiyyah. Ibn Taymiyyah is a scholar who lived 700 years ago. And mm-hmm. so I said, okay, fine. Except that the library is in Kabul and I wasn't in Kabul at the time. So two weeks later, I was in Kabul by chance. And in the Al-Qaeda headquarters there, they have a massive library there, which I enjoyed spending a lot of time there. Uh, the comprehensive works of Ibn Taymiyyah is 37 volumes, but thank God the last two volumes are actually the indices. And so basically mm-hmm. I went to open the index and found it uh, in volume 28 and looked at it. Only to my shock and to my dismay, I found basically that the fatwa doesn't resemble basically what they were talking mm-hmm. about. So the fatwa concerning a group of fatwas... Uh, that were issued 800 years ago regarding the Mongol invasions of the Muslim world. As you know, basically, Genghis Khan mm-hmm. uh, was offended by the you know, uh, emperor of the Khawarizmid Empire. By the way, the Khawarizmid Empire is the empire that gave us algorithms. Algorithms come from the word Al-Khawarizmi. From the, right, okay. Yeah, from the scholar you know, uh, Ibn Mahmoud al-Khawarizmi. So, so they gave us algorithms. And I think basically Genghis Khan punished them for that. But anyway, <laughs> so any math student who basically cursing the, you know, the difficulty of uh, algorithms, remember Genghis Khan took your revenge. So, so when, Genghis. Yeah, so when Genghis Khan invaded the Khawarizmid Empire, um, you know, basically the Mongols had the practice that when they sack uh, a, a Muslim city, uh, they will take a few thousand civilians from that city and then when they march into the next Muslim city, make these prisoners push the siege towers, the Mongol siege towers, oh, okay. towards the walls of the next uh, Muslim city to sack it. Mm-hmm. So the defenders were you know, put in a difficult position. Are they going to shoot arrows and javelins at these, def- you know, these poor prisoners, basically, who are pushing the Mongol siege towers and kill them, even though they are fellow Muslims and neighbors from another city? Um, and the answer was, yes, you are allowed to kill those civilian prisoners because if you don't kill them, you will be dead too. I mean, you have to defend yourselves. So you see how, you know, you know whenever basically some, after, after every, you know, terrorist atrocity, whenever basically I tell people, well, look, like, you know, they, these people twist the, uh, you know, the religious text of Islam and they roll their heads and say, and eyes and say, come on, we've been hearing mm. this forever. And I would say, no, true. It is true because I give you an example now of how, you know, you know, how a religious text you know, was twisted to the point of breaking. In fact, it's, it broke completely in order to justify something else that is unrelated because I didn't see the American embassy in Nairobi pushing the siege towers towards Mecca and Medina yeah. in order to justify that right now we need to attack it, we need to bomb it and kill hundreds of Africans with it in order to stop them. There was no necessity that basically, there was no life and death situation, you know, that necessitated at that right moment that we should attack. Mm -hmm. So I realized then that if this is what they are going to do right now, they are going to do something even worse down the line. 
and I was right. So by then I started plotting my exit, uh, you know, and I was thinking, that's it, I don't want to be part of this. Of course, I didn't, you know, wake up, you know, uh, one day and I uh, thought, hey, uh, I'm going to be a spy, uh, you know, but nonetheless, I mean, I just woke up one day and I decided I don't want to be part of this. I will leave, I will go back to the Gulf where I will go into academia, study history, uh, become a history teacher. Uh, well, much you know, to the relief of my would-be students, it never <laughs> happened. <laughs> so, um, how naive I was. I mean, b b basically I thought, okay, you know, uh, there, there was an episode where I had contracted both malaria and typhoid, uh, you know, I, almost a year prior to that. Uh, I needed to go to Qatar for a treatment mm -hmm. uh, and then went back. So basically the hospital there said, in a year, you have to come back to make sure basically that we test your liver to make sure that it's not permanently damaged. Uh, so I thought, okay, I will use that excuse to go to Qatar in the Gulf, um, which is not far away from my home city in Saudi Arabia, in Khubar. Uh, so at least I will be close to my family. I will mm -hmm. be nearby and I will be out of trouble. Well, that's what I thought. <laughs> um, so in December... Um, you know, I and by the way, like, you know, just a week after that discovery in uh, in the library in Kabul, uh, some of our bases and headquarters were attacked by cruise missiles, you know, by the Americans because Bill wow. Clinton enacted his revenge for the East Africa bombing. So that was a wake up call mm -hmm. uh, for me. Uh, so I remember years and years later when I uh, became a security, you know, and political consultant, uh, I was sitting with um, you know, a team from uh, Raytheon, uh, you know, uh, it's an American defense contractor yeah. who make cruise missiles. You know, so basically, you know, I was sitting across the table and I had some colleagues with me who were, you know, themselves ex-spies, you know, and uh, and then we were talking about, you know, you know, the, the, the sale of certain, you know, missiles basically to uh, Saudi Arabia and other places. And, you know, it was defensive missiles, the Patriot uh, anti-aircraft and anti-ballistic missiles. So what happened is they said, oh, we manufacture cruise missiles. Oh, yeah, I know about them. Yeah, basically, like, you know, I mean, I, uh, and they said, yeah, you know, you're from Saudi Arabia. So they were used against Iraq. I said, yeah. But I had another experience, basically. Like, and I was at the receiving end of them at once <laughs> in Afghanistan. And all of them looked so uneasy and looked at each other, like, you know, basically, oh, don't, don't worry, basically. Like, you know, I was impressed. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know. It was enough to make me change my mind. Yeah. You know, it changed my mind. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so I was impressed. Uh, I remember, basically, I mean, they all invited me for dinner that night <laughs> just to catch up with so many things. Um and uh, then to tell them more interesting things about the one missile that didn't explode and landed and that how the Taliban took it and then sold it to the Chinese so they can reverse engineer it. And that's how the Chinese built up their cruise missile program. Oh, my God. Yeah. So I, I remember seeing the Chinese, you know, uh, people coming and taking it. <laughs> I won't go. I won't stray too far into this subject because it's going way off tangent. But you have said that China, although they will go on to very quickly or very soon become the global economic force, they will never be the number one because they're always going to be replicators and not innovators and that just sums that up perfectly they'll just reverse engineer everything Fuck I've, it I've seen it with my own eyes the Chinese insane. engineers coming and taking that cruise missile that uh, landed but didn't explode because who, it, it who, landed in a lake just next to us who would have ever imagined that China somehow had a connection between Al-Qaeda and the West's <laughs> like fucking ongoing dispute bloody hell indeed so so I left, you know, uh, Afghanistan and went to Qatar, 
you know, with the idea that I will be calling them a few days later, telling them, oh, the Qatari authorities confiscated my passport and I'm not allowed to leave. So, you know, until then, see you another life. Bye. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, the Qataris had another idea. <laughs> <laughs> is your mattress making noises it never used to? Or is it sagging, causing you to... Then it's time to get a new one. Get the best sleep at the best value with a Nectar mattress. Prices start at just $499, and you get $399 in accessories thrown in, a 365-night home trial, and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. Yeah. A day after I landed, I was detained. Mm. Um... And I, and the detention itself was like something from a movie. Uh, you know, it's like I was with my friend in the car, and then he received a phone call on his mobile, and uh, you know they were telling him, "Look, there is a car behind you. There is a car ahead of you. So all we want is your friend. Just continue driving, following mm. the car ahead of you all the way to the uh, state security building, and just leave your friend there with us." He will be well treated. Don't worry, you know, and all of that. So basically, it was just surreal. Mm. So I told him, no, don't worry. Seriously, don't worry. I mean, everything will be fine. I was calming him down. He was panicking. So I just told him, basically, my effects that you have, there is a leather pouch there. Just make sure it is buried because it's really sensitive. That was the entire chemical and biological weapon program for Qaeda with <sighs> me on floppy disks. Now for the... Young listeners, floppy yeah. disks are an ancient tool of storing information. From the Egyptian times, I believe, they were yeah. discovered the pyramids are that old. They're an antiquated thing. A kid wouldn't know what a, a floppy disk is, would they? Imagine a USB stick that is a lot flatter, is not floppy whatsoever, um, and is very conspicuous. Indeed. So, you know, so basically I said, yeah, just bury that and keep the rest. Okay. So I, uh, you know, so I was driven to the state security building and there I remember um, it was at the beginning a very tense atmosphere. You know, they put me in a room and in front of me there was a big table and there were nine, you know, interrogators there and the lights were on me. And so it, their side was a bit dark. The, my mm -hmm. side was very well lit. And, you know, and they all started basically, you know, asking, name, you know, so, okay, you know, date of birth, okay, date of birth, you know, and, you know, and where were you born? Mother name, father name, this, this, that, okay, you know, your names of brothers, okay, fine. And then after that, do you deny that you are a member of the Qaeda? No. They were all looking at each other, okay. Do you deny that you are an associate of Abu Zubaydah? Abu Zubaydah is, you know, one of the facilitators of Al-Qaeda. He mm -hmm. was well known. And he is the reason why I was arrested, because basically I made a phone call from his mobile phone, which was monitored by the French intelligence. And the Qataris and the French realized I was actually using it in order to, uh, to coordinate with a friend of mine in Doha in Qatar. That I'm arriving. So that's how the Qataris knew of my arrival. Uh, the French tipped them off and they re the French were desperate to talk to me. You know, so uh, so basically, you know, the whole thing was taped, you know, or at least there was a camera leading into another room where mm -hmm. there were French intelligence operatives. So uh, so I was sitting there and, you know, they were asking all the questions. And then they said, so you don't deny that, you know, I was a beta. I said, no, I don't deny. Did you make a phone call from his 
you know backtell mobile phone basically to you know uh, to here in Doha no I did make a phone call you know from that phone how well you know Abu Zubaydah I know Abu Zubaydah well it was Khalid Sheikh Mohammed who gave me that number <laughs> in, in Bosnia you know basically told me you know to call him and he will arrange my training so they they said okay wait a minute here like I mean why are you so candid ah okay uh, I was going to come to this part uh, I, I'm actually leaving Al-Qaeda mm-hmm. what well I'm leaving because basically I'm you have no idea how disillusioned I am basically I came here because I just wanted to leave all of this behind me so they said how genuine you know basically I said you know I I said, I swear, you know, basically in the Quran, if you give me a copy and, you know, I would say basically that God wrath on me if I'm lying. Mm. So they all looked at each other and they said, okay, one minute. They all left the room, you know, five minutes later, they came back, they switched on all the lights and they came and they shook hands and hugged me one by one. Just to say, basically, thank you. And mm. you've done the right thing. Because don't forget, basically, we're all Bedouins, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, in, in the Arabian Peninsula. We're all Bedouins. We all, you know, give a word of honor when we talk about these things. And mm-hmm. they realize, basically, that, okay, if you're telling the truth, then, well, you know, we will have. Uh, suddenly, basically, you know, they uh, said, okay, we're going to order, you know, dinner from the Sheraton, which is next door, you know, for you <laughs> and all of that. And we started talking and, you know, they said, well, we need, we have lots of questions and this debriefings could last a few days. Is that okay? But we will make you stay here extremely comfortable, mm-hmm. um, which they did, actually. I mean, I give them that, uh, I give that to them. And, um, and then near the end of the debriefing, which lasted nine days, Um, they said to me, what is it that you want when you arrived here? And I, t- I told them exactly that I wanted to go to university, study history and you know, become a teacher and just live in uh, Qatar. They said, okay, we will hit a snag here. The reason is because Qatar is really small. Mm. I mean, Doha is a city of 250,000 people. That's a suburb of Glasgow, let alone London. Yeah. Okay, I mean, yeah. so, and you will be running into your friends every single day because there is only one big mosque, basically, in all of Doha, basically, for the Friday prayers. You will see them every Friday, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, how, you need the protection of a bigger agency. You need to go somewhere big. And there are three offers on the table here for you. Of course, the first is from the French, and they've been all along. You didn't see them, but they are all you know all around. Mm. They know here, seeing you and watching you, uh, and they are very keen on you. Basically, you know, uh, very keen that you come and uh, you you know you work with them. The second is from the Americans, and the third is from the British. So I said, as far as the French are concerned, well, I have the greatest respect for them, but I'm not you know extremely enthusiastic about living in France, having to learn a new language. Mm-hmm. You know, and all of that, basically. Um, the second thing is that as far as for the Americans, just four months ago, I survived a cruise, you know, missiles attack, you know, a barrage of <laughs> cruise missile attacks on me. I mean, so it's difficult, basically, to just switch on from working, you know, with people that I wanted to kill and they wanted to kill me, you know, and then became become good buddies with them. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, it's very difficult. As for the British, there is more affinity there because my grandfather fought for the British in the Great Arab Revolt right. uh, in Iraq against the Ottoman Empire. Uh, you know, there are pictures of that to prove that. Even. Wow. <laughs> so, and he actually was, you know, became officially part of the British Army. He was a major with the uniform and all of that. And he became the head of the colonial police in Basra uh, in Iraq for five years from 1919 to Real- 1924. Like, reality is far more hard to believe than any fiction ever could be. Like, that exactly. is just incredible. So... 
since my father fought for the my grandfather fought for the British, um, I thought there is some more affinity there. I mean, and it wasn't their missiles that hit you know uh, my location just a few months ago, and so I thought, okay, I will give the you know uh, the British a chance here, and so I. They said, okay, we will arrange, you know, can you take a decision in about half an hour? Because we need to arrange everything within half an hour. I said, are you kidding? Half an hour. So I remember thinking about it. I mean, I didn't leave Afghanistan just to become a spy against the people who just until a few months ago or a few weeks ago, actually, were my comrades. Yeah. And, you know, when I, before I left Afghanistan, I prayed and I, you know said to the Lord that I'm leaving and I'm putting my fate entirely in your hand. I trust that wherever you take me, it mm-hmm. is your plan, it is your wisdom. I will not, I will never contest it. So I thought basically, if this is where he is taking me to, you know, to, you know, to work for the UK intelligence services, I thought, okay, fine. But as a spy or as someone who will debrief them only, you know, that was a big question. So I ask, is it debriefing or espionage and the, uh, the answer immediately came was oh no just debriefing okay that's a relief <laughs> <laughs> how naive i was still <laughs> so you know so obviously like you know i you know uh, i was i boarded the plane the british airways plane and i was taken to uh, heathrow and there i was received by uh, both mi5 and mi6 um you know into one of the you know, uh, conspicuous rooms somewhere mm-hmm. there. Like, I mean, and uh, we had ch- a three-hour chat um, and, you know, having a cover story that the uh, hospital in Doha, you know, thought that my situation merited, you know, them sending me to a specialist hospital in London, you know, and that was arranged also. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the whole thing looked good. And then naturally, slowly blending with the Al-Qaeda scene in London. And that was how it happened. And there is great more details of that in the book. So don't be lazy. Go and read the book. And just (laughs) (laughs) Yes, let's say at this point, I have the book, um, Nine Lives. What is the full title? Because I do have it. I can just get it on my phone. (laughs) Well, it's called um, Nine Lives, My Time as MI6 Spy Inside Al-Qaeda. Yeah, I have it as audio book, and it accompanies me as a cycle, and <laughs> Thank uh, you. it's absolutely incredible. So we can that that. What what I find amazing and just unbelievable about that is you've come off a plane, you've been met by MI five and MI six and taken into a room in Heathrow. For all I know, and I'm being jokey here, but I could have walked past that as that was happening, and I could walk past that at any time. Yes. Um, these things we don't know are going on. You know, attacks. It's sad. Was it you that was that shared it the other day? Um, is it Savid Javid was talking about the amount of terror attacks that are actually foiled yeah. every year? I mean, that must be an incredible amount. And no one talks about them. Yeah, and I suppose because you don't know. You don't know. That's it. Mm-hmm. You know, foiled. No need to talk about it. That's it. That's yeah. it. we foiled it. That you know, and 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 throughout my career, I can tell you basically the amount of things that has been foiled either in early stages or later stages mm-hmm. is, is phenomenal. I would say basically like what you see on the news is just the tip of the iceberg. Mm. Um, and that is because of the sometimes what happens is you don't wait for the evidence to become so apparent you just look for other misdemeanors like you know uh, financial uh, misdemeanors and you know well he just uh, jumped a red light okay let's go and rattle his cage and yeah. while you are giving him the ticket we know about the bomb you're trying to build we know about the knife basically you want to do an attack with you know you know basically just cut it cut the crap Go back and live your life, mm-hmm. and we will keep your our eyes on you. 
you have no idea how much of that's happening. That's incredible. When Otherwise, yeah, there would be the British legal system will be clogged with cases of counterterrorism every year. Mm-hmm. So your your cover story is established. You then go back to Afghanistan, is that right? And just re- go about your business as normal? Yeah, uh, that was the biggest surprise for me because what happened is I thought I will just land in the UK. It was uh, Christmas of um, 1998. And when I went to the airport, my friend who well, I was you know, supposed to stay with in Doha, basically, I told him to come to the airport and bring the pouch you know, that I had with me, the leather pouch which contained the entire program for chemical and biological weapons for Al-Qaeda with me. Uh, so I said to him, you know, well, I mean, I'm going somewhere at the moment for, um, you know, treatment. So, you know, thank you so much for your help. And so when I arrived in the UK, I just, you know, passed this pouch over the table to wow. my new contacts. And I said, basically, this is what it contains. So I remember uh, the head of MI5 counterterrorism. He was the one who received me, uh, and he was an Arabist. He said, you know, Christmas came early. It was 16 December of uh, 98, so it was just uh, a week before Christmas. He said, basically, that Christmas came early. I never envisioned that Santa will come from Afghanistan. (laughs) (laughs) So... <laughs> I was just about to say that it was like that all the Christmases and birthdays coming at once like you just couldn't believe I bet you they went and put the lottery numbers on as well because they're thinking like our luck is high like we should keep riding it and so the idea was there will be debriefings and so the debriefings lasted five months you know so I thought it would be two months but actually there was so much to talk about you know hundreds of individuals dozens of camps you know safe houses phone numbers and then they had a library of hundreds of pictures. And the idea is not just only to identify who these people are, but their connections, association, Mm -hmm. then putting picture next to picture, and then, you know, this kind of building a matrix of, you know, associations. And, you know, the idea of to build a encyclopedia of knowledge for them, basically. And since I had a good memory, I memorized faces, I memorized names, I memorized numbers, I Mm -hmm. memorized uh, all of these things and addresses. And so I was able to, you know, at least give them some of the, you know, larger pieces of the puzzle than they ever had before um, and at that time the counter-terrorism with them both MI5 and MI6 was really small they just started drafting people uh, in from other uh, sectors especially from the uh, nuclear from the CBRN CBRN is uh, chemical biological radiological and nuclear uh, nuclear uh, prol- proliferation uh, okay. sector of MI6 as well as the counter IRA you know in MI5 because the IRA issue was winding down with the Good Friday Agreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have, you know, counter uh, proliferation of the CBRN was also winding down because finally the Russian uh, authorities in 1998, 1999 started to put the lid on uh, leakage of uranium and other things. So, you know, so basically, suddenly they had the new threat, Al-Qaeda. So suddenly the small offices of counter-Islamic terrorism that were small within yeah. MI5 and MI6 enlarged heavily, you know, four or five hundred percent of their original size. And so they were drafting so many people. So suddenly I started to see more and more people coming to our meetings. And I realized in later years they were learning. Mm-hmm. And they didn't tell me that at the beginning, basically. I mean, so maybe they're not, not to inflate my head, but they were just learning. You know, because they just wanted to learn as much as possible about this new threat that is emerging from Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, and then, of course, after five months of engaging in this, 
they asked me the question. And by the way, at the time, I was also in the background in, you know, connecting with almost all of those who were involved with Al-Qaeda and other jihadist groups in London and Manchester and Birmingham uh, and even in Brighton. You know, a city like Brighton <laughs> even had uh, you know, a massive presence of Libyan you know, uh, jihadists, you know, uh, you know, connected to the Libyan Islamic fighter group, which is uh, connected to Al-Qaeda. So, so at the time, they asked me a question. They said, we are about to ask you something that is really delicate. But it is completely your right to say no. And in fact, basically, take your time. You want to take a week or two to answer this question? No problem. The question is, will you ever consider going back to Afghanistan, you know, for us, basically, to fill in some of the gaps? And without hesitation, I said yes. Mm. And they said, no, no, no. I mean, even seriously, like, can you take your time? I said, no, no, no. Yes, I can. I mean, I have no problem whatsoever with that. Well, they were looking suspicious. Like, and I mean, that was a very quick question. Answer why? I said, I'm bored. <laughs> <laughs> so you still want that adventure? Yeah, I'm bored. I mean, living in London really, it really bores you so much. I mean, <laughs> it's so boring. I mean, I really miss the smell of gunpowder, the chemicals, you know, the, <laughs> you know, the sound of shells and, you know, mortars falling around. Like, I mean, I, I really miss that. So they said, um, yeah, okay. You know that you were 20. So basically, like, you know, I mean, there are other legalities about basically asking you to go and put your life at risk. But, you know, first of all, because you're 20, you know, we want to know basically that is it just only pure boredom or there is something else? Like, you know, I mean, uh, and I said, no, no, I, I'm, I'm definitely happy to do it. They said, yes, but do you know basically that once you're there, you know, just like your old instructor told you before, your first mistake is your last mistake. Mm-hmm. If they found out you're spying, you know, it's over. You know, they will not, you know, uh, be lenient. I mean, it's going to be a, an execution party. So are you going to, are, are you up to this? Do you understand the consequences? I said, yes, I, you know, I've been there before. I've seen, you know, at least in the past, one spy being sentenced and beheaded. So it's not like um, I don't know what mm-hmm. are the consequences. But, you know, we've been you know, talking to each other for five months, during these five months, lots of things, you know, that happened just from talking to you. And, the, you know, I won't call it a friendship, but I would call it basically the the association, you know, and with some uh, degree of affection that was establishing there. And many of the old perception I had about the West basically was crumbling one after another. Mm-hmm. Because I realized basically that I'm not talking to enemies here. I'm talking to people who are, you know, intellectual knowledge seekers, people who care about their own country, people who want to defend their own country, and also people who really care about the concept of the nation state. Mm. And suddenly everything became clear to me that the battle is not between Islam and the West. The battle is between those who believe in the modern nation state and those who want to bring down the nation state. Mm. So I explained that to them. And that's when they felt more easy and comfortable. And, of course, there has to be training before I have to go back and establish a very good cover story, which was a cover story that have helped me so much, you know, to avoid as much suspicion as possible, because suspicions were always there, of course. Mm. Um, But you need to have a cover story. And the cover story is there are always members of Al-Qaeda, senior members of Al-Qaeda, who want to make more money you know, basically, than 
you know, what they are getting from Al-Qaeda's, you know, monthly meager income. Uh, so what they do is that they trade in items, you know, basically that are not available in the Arabian Peninsula, you know, in Saudi or Kuwait or Bahrain. So things like, you know, honey from Kashmir or the Himalayan you know, pink salt mm-hmm. uh, and certain other spices and certain gemstones that are not available and that are sought after in the Gulf markets. So since my oldest brother was in the Chamber of Commerce <laughs> in Saudi Arabia and have links in the customs, the idea is clearing these through customs will be just, you know, a cakewalk. So we devised this very good cover story that I could help these senior members of Al-Qaeda make extra money on the side by doing trade. And this money is not going towards Al-Qaeda for military effort. This is basically going into their own pockets mm-hmm. so they can have better cars and better homes and better, you know, they can hire maids or, you know, servants yeah. in Afghanistan. So, you know, so there was no question of terrorism finance here. So everything was perfect. So we decided, okay, let's do it. And that's how it started. So even when there were suspicions because I was frequently traveling, going and coming, some people were saying, why is he going and coming? You know, do we trust someone basically who have, you know, so much freedom to go and come? And it's those in the top who are making money. They were defending me. Right. Okay. Because, you know, I was the reason they Mm -hmm. are having good money in their pockets. They didn't want that, you know, golden goose, you know, basically to die. Yeah. So they overlooked sometimes even silly mistakes on my part, you know, basically that, that could have given the game away. But thank God, they say there is an Arabic saying, you know, feed the mouth and the eyes will go blind. <laughs> yeah. And then when you eventually are rumbled, you're traveling, you receive a text from someone saying there's a spy that's infiltrated us and he doesn't <laughs> realize that he's talking about you. Yeah. So that was none other than that came from Dick Cheney, ex-US vice president. What happened there? Oh, God. I mean, so, of course, you know, my, I, you know, for, uh, I spent, before 9-11, basically, I spent about, you know, 33 months going and coming into Afghanistan. Um, And the closest I came to understanding that there is a 9-11 was a warning that something big is about to happen in early September or end of August, and that's it. Hmm. Um, And I was supposed to deliver a message to four individuals in the UK to leave the UK as soon as possible before the end of August, and they have to be in Afghanistan. So that was the only clue I had that's something big. And the reason is because the cover story was so good, but it means that they would trust me less with sensitive information like this. However, mm-hmm. however, I always tell myself, you know, especially years after, you know, if, you know, I spent a certain month in Afghanistan instead of that month, I would have been tasked with sending money to one of the hijackers mm-hmm. in America and the whole plot would have unraveled. Oh, God. So it's just about luck. Unfortunately, this is the problem with spying. I mean, basically, you know, it's about luck. You are not entitled to know everything. Mm-hmm. In fact, in Al-Qaeda, in the Tarnak farms, where it is the main headquarters of Al-Qaeda in Qandahar, in Afghanistan, every wall had a sign on it that says, you need to know, you only need to know what you need to know. Mm-hmm. In other words, you know, need to know bases. Don't ask questions. And I never ask a single question, you know, throughout my eight years spying on Al-Qaeda. You don't ask questions. You just develop certain skills, whether they are military or financial. 
Um, and these skills should enough should be enough magnet for them to come and ask you for help in certain missions, and that's how you discover mm-hmm. things. But do not seek information; it will be the death of you. So what happened is, after 9/11, of course, I ended up being in places like Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, uh, Lebanon, uh, and of course, basically the home frontier in the UK and Europe. And it was, you know, near the you know it was the middle of 2006. Um, after you know seven and a half years exactly, you know, spying on Al Qaeda, that I received a text message saying that you know there is a spy among us, um, you know, so go for hiding or something. And I was thinking, okay, what is that happening? And he said, they read the Time Magazine website. So I was in Paris enjoying the first ever holiday I ever taken in my whole <laughs> life as a normal human being. <laughs> You know, for God's sake, I was a second day into my holiday, you know, and you trust something like this happens. Hadn't so, even done the bus tour by then. Yeah, I was in the boat tour, actually. <laughs> and so as soon as, you know, we docked near Hotel de Ville, I went to an internet cafe. You know, there was oh, for younger generation, there used to be something called internet cafe. <laughs> yes, they existed. OK, so <laughs> so, uh, you know, I went there. I opened the Time magazine website and there it says, you know, a new book coming out next week. Ron Suskind, the Pulitzer Prize, you know, winner is revealing that, you know, America, not, not Britain, you know, look at the thievery here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, America, you know, had a brilliant spy inside Al-Qaeda. He thwarted the, uh, you know, the chemical weapons plot against the New York subway. And he thwarted the attacks against the, uh, you know, another attack against uh, the uh, Fifth Fleet in Bahrain against the sailors uh, in Bahrain and uh, American sailors in Bahrain in 2004. Um, and then it says basically that I'm the one who led uh, the West to the true identity of the leaders of, of the first leader of Al-Qaeda in Arabia, who is none other than my former teacher, the one who, who told us that the Smurfs were satanic uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, Western plot, Yusuf Ayeri. And which led to his, of course, eventual, yeah. you know, death. And, yeah. you know, although basically, like, you know, my request when I made, you know, his identity clear uh, to my handlers uh, in MI6, could you ask the Saudis to bring him alive? Because... You know, I had so much affinity. He was my teacher since I was nine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he was my teacher. I mean, I can't just, you know, basically give you the information for you to kill him. Can you just get him alive? And the answer was yes, of course. So uh, they passed it on to the Saudis, you know. But then, you know, he just was so stubborn. He kept shooting at them for 13 hours, Fucking you know, hell. basically. And he never surrendered. And by the end, basically... Uh, you know, uh, the shooting ended up basically killing him. And so mm. 13 hours of begging him to handle himself over. And uh, uh, that's exactly what happened. And so I, all of this is there. Yeah. So suddenly there were, and lots of other details. Um, and then he decided, you know, to give me a name. And he decided that out of the 4,000 Arabic names in a dictionary, he decided to give me the birth name that I had, Ali. Right. So I was thinking, okay, thank you so much. So now you have brought up four distinct operations within Al-Qaeda and the only common denominator between all of them was me. Mm -hmm. 
So it will not take them long time to discover that it's me. But also, thank you for telling them basically that I come from Saudi. Thank you for telling them that my name is Ali. That's it. You might as well have put a crosshair and a bullseye on me. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, thank you. Why, why did you choose the name Ali? Yeah. You know, of all of all the names. And so my heart sank all the way down, you know, to my stomach. And mm. I pulled my uh, mobile phone, which not smart at all. It's Ericsson, you know, with the little antenna. You yeah, remember I that remember, one? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I called, uh, you know, the dedicated line, you know, to uh, MI6. And, um, and of course, basically, it was Sunday. So, you know, someone there will, t- will receive a message. So I said... It's Lawrence. That was my code name there because of Lawrence. <laughs> oh, sorry, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was the inside joke there. <laughs> so, you know, it's Lawrence. Um, and, you know, please tell, you know, such and such basically, like, and I mean, to give me a call as soon as possible. Like, you know, it's an emergency. So a minute later, like, you know, basically I received a call. Are you okay? Are you fine? Like, you know, basically, are you in trouble in Paris? I said, well, in trouble, yes, but not exactly Paris. It's somewhere else. <laughs> you know, go and read the Time magazine website. It's the first article, the front page, basically. Just read it and come back to me and explain what the fuck is this. <laughs> he said, okay, just come down and give me a minute. Five minutes later, he called and he said, where are you right now? I said, I'm very near my hotel. He said, get your stuff, check out, regardless, basically, just like, you know, tell them you check out and, you know, pay whatever necessary mm-hmm. and we will compensate you. Get on the first train. If you can't convert a ticket, just buy another ticket and just come. And we will wait for you in Waterloo. At that time, it was Waterloo rather yeah. than St. Pancras right now. And so, I, you know, and on the way back, you know, usually take two and a half hours, uh, you know, for the train from Paris, from Gardenor to Waterloo. But it felt like, you know, two and a half weeks, basically, mm. like, you know, my mind was racing as... To all the possibilities, you know, seven and a half years, I managed to fool them and it wasn't an easy task. Mm -hmm. Imagine seven and a half years of your life. Every day could have been your last. You know, I ended up with a heart condition and diabetes because of that, because I was internalizing all the stress. Yeah. You know, all the stress I was internalizing in order not to show it on my face. And after all of this, it's someone, an idiot in... Dick Cheney's office, with his approval, leaking the information to an American journalist to claim that they have human sources inside Al-Qaeda, that they do not rely entirely on uh, signal intelligence, Mm -hmm. uh, that they have human intelligence sources inside Al-Qaeda. They have spies, or as they called it, brilliant spies. When I arrived there, they told me, look, already we are at your apartment collecting all of your things. Mm -hmm. Um, we're going to destroy your computer and everything and all of that for now, you know, basically just to make sure basically no one have put anything or hacking into it. And I remember they took me into the Randolph Hotel in, uh, in Oxford in order to lay down there low for a few days. And uh, of course, basically, like, and I mean, I would, you know, wander into the park n- nearby and I would wander into the Ashmolean Museum and I would, you know, basically, like, you know, try to think what's going to happen to me. This is the question. So, mm-hmm. For six months, you know, the you know my role was really training, really. Like, you know, basically, I was just uh, meeting lots of the raw recruits, 50 of them, basically, coming, you know, who are coming into MI5 and MI6. I would basically even meet with policymakers, you know, within uh, uh, the uh, organizations, even from the cabinet office. I would, you know, wow. uh, you know, meet with them. And then I would end up going into a certain... Uh, a certain 
you know, castle somewhere on the coast that is actually a training facility for them. Right. Um, you know, and I would basically, uh, you know, have uh, long, you know, sessions talking to both new and old, you know, officers about all the things while, you know, what to do. And then came, you know, the idea. One senior... Uh, one of the senior controllers, actually, of MI6. You know, basically, there are seven controllers, and among them, they choose the head of the organization mm -hmm. in MI6. They are like the College of Cardinals. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, so basically, one of the controllers was retiring, and he was very much aware of me and my work. And he was retiring and going to, as usual, joining a global bank. Yeah, uh, the real terrorist, as you say. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was by the end of 2006. And he said, well, I'm going to take over the uh, fraud, money laundering, terrorism, finance responsibility, you know, and security, actually, mm -hmm. terrorism, you know, everything, physical security, financial security, all of that. I'm going to take that responsibility for that bank. I want him to come with me. Mm. And it's like they, when they told me this, they said, I said to them, are you out of your mind, a banker? <laughs> really? You know, a banker. <laughs> okay, so I was... At least I think that's what they're calling me. Yeah, I, I, you know, from a trainee imam, you know, basically to, to a revolutionary jihadist, you know, basically then, uh, you know, in, into a bomb maker and then basically you want me to become a spy and then after that you want me to become a banker? <laughs> James Bond does not have a look in, does he? Yeah, and so they said, yeah, but he will love it. But am I going to end up wearing, you know... Uh, suits and ties and they said oh yeah <laughs> we're afraid so I'm <laughs> <laughs> me wearing a suit and a tie yeah <laughs> so um, <laughs> so I met that uh, senior uh, official and he filled my heart with confidence and we remain friends to this day mm. to this day basically there isn't a week without us having a conversation fantastic we became even though basically he's you know, nearing 70 and I'm 40 but you know, the friendship between us basically is so deep, yeah. you know, that, um, you know, my children love him very much. And, you know, so, so it's, 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 it, yeah, it, it, you know, it, 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 it was the beginning of a very, very, very enduring friendship. You... And uh, then I ended up, as you know, basically like, you know, being a banker for almost mm -hmm. eight years. <laughs> and have you, have you curtailed that now? Like you, you're not doing that anymore? Is that something that you've left in the past? Or do you still take, undertake that kind of work? Well, I left... Uh, the bank in 2014 mm. uh, because I started having you know, requests from other banks and other companies and other governments. Mm -hmm. And so it was difficult to combine all of this and especially my contract you know, forbade me from working with anyone else. Yeah. So I thought basically, okay, I will just leave and become independent. Mm -hmm. It was a very good decision actually because, you know, from a professional point of view, but also from a fulfillment point of view because... You do, you know, while I was with the bank, I was doing a lot of investigations. So I would travel into Lebanon, into Egypt, into Latin America. I, I had adventures even in the uh, tri-border area between Brazil, Argentina and Paraguay. I was almost killed there by, uh, you know, people who wanted to protect the money laundering of Bloody Hezbollah hell. and the Iranian IRGC there uh, in the Fos de Iguazu region. Uh, I was investigating money laundering there. So, so basically, I enjoyed, you know, working in the bank. I've learned a lot about finance. Uh, I brought my experience in terms of terrorism finance, how terrorists do business, and I combined it with their knowledge of money laundering and cartel drug laundering money. 
and how basically all of this work. And so I was able to bring all of this together. And then I was able to really like investigate so many of these cases and mm-hmm. alert them to so many of the uh, dangers. And so they will be able to either close accounts or exit relationships. And, uh, you know, also basically how to identify potential terrorists, basically, you know, flying into dangerous areas. For example, you know, how to detect the pattern, the movement pattern of a would-be ISIS new jihadists mm-hmm. through the use of their debit and credit cards what are they buying online what are the, which physical areas uh, in places either in europe or in turkey or in egypt or in jordan if they you know even down by the block so i would highlight certain blocks that basically even if they use their debit or credit card for uh, withdrawing cash from atms in these blocks uh, or uh, checking into hotel or buying anything from a restaurant alert the authorities because basically this pattern of movement is indicative of someone who's going to join ISIS or Al-Qaeda mm-hmm. in Syria uh, or going to join them in, if it's in Kenya, then joining them in Somalia. So, you know, so we ended up basically even you know, combining terrorism finance, human intelligence and AI, you know, artificial <laughs> intelligence yeah. to really combat terrorism. Uh, you know, it was one of the best times. But then... I, I had to do that for other clients also. So it's you know I started doing it for oil companies. <laughs> yeah, I'm guilty of that. I started doing it for some governments. Some of them are democratic. Some of them are well less so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it's all counterterrorism. What can you do? Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, and then you know, just you know, and for the past you know, basically six years, I've been uh, independent consultant, but. This is when two years ago, a friend of mine, uh, Jake Warren, who, you know, I knew for about four or five years now, uh, came to me and said, you know, how about to do a podcast to <laughs> explain the complexities, you know, and simplify the complexities, let's mm-hmm. put it this way, uh, of the Middle East uh, conflicts. And uh, because the way you describe them, you know, basically I like. And so I said, OK, fine. I have a friend of mine also who could come and help Thomas Small. A uh, former Greek Orthodox monk who was in his childhood an evangelical Christian <laughs> from California, <laughs> <laughs> who became an Arabist and makes documentaries. <laughs> so, uh, so what an interesting, you know, life. <laughs> yeah. So, and we combined to make the Conflicted podcast, and you know that's how you heard of me, I think. And, yeah, that is. Uh, you know, and here we are. <laughs> I know it's funny how these things happen. With Conflicted, I've I've not stopped talking about it. Um, I've I've converted a lot of people, um, to to listening to it. It's um, Conflicted is incredible. If you haven't heard me banging on about it, or you haven't heard the interview that I did with Jake Warren, which was the last episode, go and have a wee listen to that. Jake talks about his experiences making documentaries in North Korea with um, Scrappy Doo, a.k.a. Tommy Robinson, um, and the EDL, and also with ISIS, Liberian warlords, you name it, they've spoken to them. Incredible. And they produced Conflicted, which, as Eamon has just explained, so I would go into that. Conflicted, it's incredible. I can't <laughs> wait for the, the third the uh, the third series. Um, a question I wanted to ask as well and I already know the answer but I just want to hear how you would say it obviously your allegiance now to counter-terrorism cannot be disputed because of the the sophistication and the the level of intricacy and the information that you've provided the training and and thwarting things but what now is your attitude to to I suppose British ideals or or, um, western ideals in general do you feel that have you hopped over the fence or do you now remain somewhere in the middle? Like, where are you? My loyalty always is to the nation state and to the concept of the modern nation state. 
I have lived six years of my life in four different war zones. Mm. I've seen death and almost genocide on industrial scale. You know, from the mass graves we've discovered, you know, from the charred remains of people we saw in burned down villages, you know, from the prisoners who we exchanged, you know, as young as 12 and 14 and, you know, you know, and, you know, and they are girls, you know, from the abused girls. And, you know, all of this, you know, convinced me that there is no guarantor, no better guarantor for safety, security, stability, you know, law and order you know, economic prosperity than the modern nation state. Anyone who tells you otherwise, they never lived mm. in a collapsed society. They never saw the horrors of a collapsed society, of a society that is in anarchy, in a society where, you know, basically everything you take for granted, an ATM outside full of cash, mm -hmm. you know, a bus that can take you anywhere, you know, a running water electricity basically that can give you light you know a safe street outside you know you know basically you know you know in a collapsed society all of these things are gone and you can't never you can never take them for granted and your mentality will reverse from planning a year or two or five years ahead into planning to survive the five days ahead mm -hmm. you know so anyone who tells you that oh the modern nation state this is an outdated concept Basically, you know, they deserve two slaps in the face and wake up because you haven't seen what a collapsed state look like. Mm. I've seen them all. And trust me, it's not a pretty thing to see. So my experiences in Afghanistan, in Bosnia, in Chechnya, especially on the border areas with the refugees, you know, in the Philippines and in Syria, when I went there to say goodbye to my dead nephew who was 19, who was lured by Al-Qaeda's ideals to go and fight there, as well as my cousin who was 20. They all went and fight there and died there because basically they lured, they were lured into it. So when I went there and saw with my own eyes the barrel bombs falling on people basically and turning you know, young girls into mutilated parts, this is basically when I say to people, don't you ever lose faith in the modern nation state, mm. because that's the only thing that can guarantee the things that you take for granted right now, but could be taken away at a moment's notice if all things collapse. You mentioned having two fatwas and something that a, a quote-unquote normal person like me, for example, would take for granted as my everyday safety. Not having the threat of kidnap and murder hanging over me. You've had a couple of kidnap and murder plots foiled and prevented. What stops you from, from cowering in fear? Because you're speaking so clearly and so candidly and, and very passionately as you have just there about about everything. What makes you feel so comfortable? Is there an MI6 guy outside like constantly <laughs> telling you? I, actually, do you know what? I'd like to take this opportunity to say hello to the CIA, MI6 and MI5 guys who are fucking 100% are listening. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, I hope you've enjoyed it and I hope you'll continue to tell all your pals in the office to listen as well. Well, I don't think there is an MI6 guy outside, uh, but there is a powerful, all-seeing, all-knowing in a protective entity upstairs, mm -hmm. basically, that I have my faith in. Um, and if I was so willing to lay down my life for Al-Qaeda's cause, mm -hmm. it would be extremely hypocritical of me, you know, if I become a coward, you know, countering them. Um, 
you know, first of all, it's not in my nature to be a coward. Uh, I'm not a reckless person. You know, basically, I take precautions, mm-hmm. you know, uh, where I live. And by the way, I live in Scotland. I'm not like in a keeping the secret, but I live in Scotland, somewhere in Scotland. We can't which say is, where. Yeah, but it's the best decision I ever made. You know, basically, I'm deeply, deeply, deeply in love with this country. Um, you know, you know, there is something deeply spiritual and deeply beautiful, inexplicable about how this place is amazing. Um, well, I, I don't know what it is, but if, if you're looking for um, 800 year old religious division in Warren, you've <laughs> certainly come to the right place. <laughs> That's why you feel at home. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so, and tribalism. Also. Yeah. <laughs> so, people who ignore facts and rationale, yeah, you, you've hit the jackpot. <laughs> we've got it all. Exactly. But it's, there is certain beauty here that. One cannot, you know, explain just by, you know, um, imagery. There's something more than that. And so basically, I love it. I love being here. And um, But the good thing is that basically where I live is absolutely well protected. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, with lots of, you know, how can I say, uh, nosy neighbors who just n- notice every single car, even delivery car, comes and goes for some reason. Do your neighbors <laughs> know who you are? Uh, some of them know, basically, because they themselves, like, you know, some of them worked in the defense industry or something like that before. And right, so, okay. you know, uh, so some of them basically, and because I uh, share a WhatsApp group with them, and so basically mm-hmm. some of them Googled me, um, and uh, their reaction basically was extremely welcoming. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, basically, uh, you know, and also basically during lockdown, basically, is to leave, you know, basically outside some gifts for my children. So, yeah. <laughs> is it like, okay, we are leaving you gifts, please don't hurt us? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know what the motive yeah. is. <laughs> Brilliant. I feel like I could ask a million, million more questions. There's just one or two, because I won't keep you too long, uh, that I would like to touch on. And again, to the CIA, MI5 and MI6 people. I'm not suggesting anything. I'm just asking the question. If I say the name Tim Osman, what what would that make you think of? There's a there's a there's a, a conspiracy theory going around that Tim uh, Osama bin Laden was actually known as as Tim Osman, and that he was uh, <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and he was a CIA agent because I want you I don't believe it, but I think you're the perfect person to to debunk it because it ties in with the conspiracy theory that 9-11 was carried out by the Americans in order to justify going to war in Iraq but having listened to everything that you've explained it seems to be impossible First of all it is impossible because you know his family is from my country and I met uh, you know, several of his brothers. I met uh, in a Muwaffaq, I met Haider. I saw Bakr bin Laden, you know, his oldest brother, uh, in the Dorchester Hotel in London in 2010 uh, with the entourage of King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia. My God. Uh, yeah, because they run a big company and uh, their father is well known. He died in a helicopter crash in 1967. Um, you know, I know his sister Maryam. I know the man who taught his sister Maryam uh, bin Laden in the University of Umm al-Qura in Mecca. How, how does his brother get to just come in? Surely, would you not imagine that the security services would be like, hold on a fucking minute, like, we've got a few questions for you? <laughs> well, don't forget basically that it was well established that he was the black sheep of the family right, and okay. he abandoned his family completely in 1992. Um, so, and the family themselves issued a statement in 1994 saying, we have nothing to do with him. Remember, they are a billionaire family. Yeah. Do they and own Aramco? 
No, they own the Bin Laden Group, the SBG, or right. the Saudi Bin Laden Group, which is basically like, you know, have a revenue of $5 billion a year. It built, mm-hmm. it, it built the Grand Mosque in Mecca. It built the Grand Mosque in Medina. It built the uh, several airports in Saudi Arabia. It built several, several air bases. Uh, they built, uh, you know, a whole railway uh, system, basically. So these, um, you know, people were... His family, I mean, they know him, they, you know, we know who his family is. Mm -hmm. So it's not like an unknown from somewhere unplugged, unplugged out of nowhere and then basically put somewhere, you know, it's just, it has to be the biggest elaborate, you know, hoax because it will have involved a family that is well known from a well known tribe, you know, and he was their brother and everyone knew so, for example, I saw Osama bin Laden basically like in videos of him coming into my hometown. I didn't uh, attend, but uh, my oldest brother attended uh, one of his lectures in 1988, you know, talking about the Afghan jihad and raising money for it. So, and he was well known as, you know, the son of Muhammad Awad bin Laden, you mm-hmm. know, the famous businessman who built the empire, the construction empire of the bin Laden group. So when people always, you know, look, people have imaginations. And just to confirm to you something here, okay, I will confirm to you something. 95% of the conspiracy theories surrounding terrorism are just theories. And the official statements were the truth. You remember in uh, the Russia episode of the season um, uh, two of Conflicted, Mm -hmm. I talk about how even one of the biggest, you know, believed conspiracy theories about President Putin of Russia that he orchestrated in 1999 series of bombings so he can jump from being a prime minister to a president of yeah. Russia and mm-hmm. to wage war on <clears throat> Chechnya and to use it as a pretext. Everyone, even many intelligence services in the West, including the British and the French, believed that it was him. He did it and that he must be a pariah because he is killing his own people, his own soldiers in their own apartments using bombs in order to justify invading Chechnya again and causing a war so he can become the war hero, the war president and jump on the presidency. But I was the one actually who came up with the smoking gun, you know, a confession even, you know, from the head of the logistics of the Chechen jihadist who said we did it and he gave a full statement as to how they did it. A so confession. They, mm. So, and it was true. The whole thing, like, in a, you know, so it's easy for the brain, for the human brain, for the less informed to believe that somehow this is so good to be true, that there is this opportunity, 9-11, the uh, apartment uh, block bombings in uh, Moscow, uh, and many other, ter- uh, five, five, uh, you know, sorry, 7-7, seven, seven, and the Madrid bombings, all of these basically are just too convenient. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. There are people who make events, and then there are other class of people who take advantage of events. And it is the second people who are we are more concerned with, because... Events are not really shaped so much as, you know, as the events basically being taken advantage of. So, you know, 9-11 happened. So America took advantage of that to divert uh, attention towards Iraq because it is a project for the neocons. That's, you know, that I accept. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Putin always had his eye on Chechnya and he knew basically they would make a mistake and they made the mistake. And he was ready for them and he pounced Mm. and took advantage and became the leader of Russia. So the reality is that, you know, not everything is conspiracy because I always tell people that you give too much credit 
you know, to these agencies. Yeah. And there is a lot of incompetence there. You have no idea how much they leak like a sieve. Mm-hmm. And the fact that, the, you know, it, 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 just look at what happened with Julian Assange. Just look what happened with uh, Bradley Manning. Look what happened with Edward Snowden. Millions upon millions of documents released. Not single one of them pointed to a 9-11 vegan conspiracy. Mm. Not even a single paper trail. And if you really want to invade Iraq, all you need is one single assassin, you know, with an Iraqi passport and an ID from the Republican Guard to assassinate, like, you know, basically a a president or a vice president. And that's it. And, Mm. and, And war can happen. You don't need a very elaborate, you know, plot like this that could ha- leave hundreds of paper trails and hundreds of guilty consciences walking around. Mm. You know, basically, one of them could leak it. Yeah, it would require that everybody was completely watertight, and as you say, the guilty conscience didn't cause them to even confide in in somebody, and then it all comes out. Yeah. yeah. So the idea, because you have to kill the people who were participating, and yeah. then you have to kill the people who killed the people who were participating, and, never and then you, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it became a Russian doll of killing. And and this is why I'm saying to people who really believe in conspiracy theories, you know, uh, there are, there is the concept of LPR, uh, logic, perspective, and reason. Mm-hmm. You know, apply these three to any event or any concept or anything, basically, and you will have a peaceful, wonderful life. (laughs) Otherwise, you will be going down the rabbit hole of conspiracy after conspiracy after conspiracy. Yeah, it never ends. What I wanted to gain or to achieve from this chat was to understand, and I felt I had a fair understanding, but to get a deeper understanding from you, personally answering my questions as to how your life became what it was. And I feel like you you have given that um, brilliantly. And, and it, it, I'm totally tripping over my words because I'm just basically taking in the whole uh, conversation that we've had about you being <laughs> a chemical, joining the, the jihad and, and, and a chemical bomb maker and becoming a spy and then working for banks and stuff. So as well to you listening, sorry for me then just ruining the flow or the fluidity. Um, but w- everything, it kind of hammers home to me that instead of just condemning, we should first try to understand it doesn't mean we have to condone and it doesn't mean you have to, you're justifying it but if you you can understand something then it helps you to make sense of the world a, a lot more um, I think the one takeaway I would take here is that redemption is available for anybody Indeed I'm sure you would agree that some of those things were on the surface seem unforgivable but if you completely denounce the, the things that took you there in the first place or, or that reason and then um, yeah, redemption is available for, for anybody even just with, as you say, thwarting attacks, what the New York subway, I'm sure there was countless others, as well as the fact that you've you've enlightened a lot of people listening to you speaking as well over a long period of time. Well, it's not a long period of time, it's been over like a month, but I've just listened to Conflicted three <laughs> times over, so I've listened to technically six series of it. It's been educated by, by the things that you've been speaking about. It's made me completely do a 180 on what I believe to be fact, what I believe to be an acceptable stance or an acceptable um, acceptable perspective on things. And it's been incredible. I can't thank you enough for, for coming it's and so sharing kind. and it's these so experiences. Um, I really look forward to listening to Series 3. I look forward to getting you back here again so I can go over all the other questions or else the boss, a.k.a. your wife, is going to be annoyed <laughs> because I would just keep you for another five hours if I could. <laughs> Uh, it's been it's been incredible. I would encourage anybody listen to Conflicted to search Nine Lives, um, Eamon's book, and yeah, 
I suppose all I can end this on again is another thank you. Well, you're welcome and thank you so much for having me. And uh, enjoy enjoy your stay in Scotland as well. I suppose <laughs> that's on behalf of everybody. That's my plan. <laughs> Leathered was written, recorded and produced by Sean McDonald in association with The Big Light. Music and post-production by Brian McAlpine and for more information go to thebiglight.com From The Big Light Studio